This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Hello, I am Jeremy Standifer, a science instructor with the Riverside Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics Academy in Riverside, California. We have gathered here on the campus of UC Riverside today to hear a lecture about the ever-growing human population and the resource and environmental challenges that we will face as the world welcomes its 7 billionth inhabitant. I am joined here today uh, with some of my 7th grade students from the Academy to welcome today's speaker, Dr. Rich Cardulo. Dr. Cardulo is the Divisional Dean of Life Science for the, for the College of Natural and Agricultural Science at UC Riverside. He is an accomplished researcher in the fields of biophysics, with training completed at the universities of Michigan, Johns Hopkins, and Harvard. Before he begins his talk, I have prepared some questions for Dr. Cardulo that will give us some insights, especially for my students, into how and why he became a scientist, what a scientist in his field does all day, and the changes he has seen in science over the course of his career. So, students, please welcome with me Dr. Rich Cardulo. Okay, Dr. Cardulo, we have a few questions for you that the students have thought about. Um, the first one is, and um, for myself, uh, I had a love of science as a, as a child. I grew up um, in a family that supported science education, and I had some great teachers that uh, helped me along the way. So my question for you, first one is, how did you end up deciding you wanted to be a scientist? Great question. Um, I grew up in a very small town in Massachusetts on the East Coast. The town had 3,000 people in it. That's it. Um, it wasn't too far from Boston, but it was full of woods and streams. And so my, my childhood was literally spent outdoors almost all the time, you know, discovering nature on my own. At the same time, I was the oldest of four children, and my parents thought that they would like, as the firstborn, make, make me a physician. So they thought the way to do that would be to introduce me to science. So I had my first uh, chemistry set and, mic and microscope by the time I was actually six years old. I used to do experiments in the basement. What my parents didn't quite understand, although they were very supportive, was that in fact they weren't creating a future physician. They were encouraging me to discover and experiment and become a future scientist. So at a very young age, actually, by the time I was 10 years old, I pretty much knew I wanted to be a professional scientist as well as a professional teacher. We really strive in the STEM Academy to, to focus on research for these students at such a young age. What sorts of research do you do now? So over the course of my career, my research program has changed. You heard that I was something called a biophysicist now. Uh, but very early in my career, I was actually interested in physics and actually worked on, as a graduate student, early on worked with liquid helium, and we'll hear about helium in a little bit, at temperatures just three degrees above absolute zero. 
And at, at, at those temperatures, liquid helium has some rather unique properties. It's, it's, it's called a superfluid. It's really cool, literally. Um, but you know, I, I, my interests changed over time, and they actually still continue to change. So I went from being a physicist in graduate school, really through my PhD, and then I went to Harvard, and I, I started learning biochemistry and cell biology, and I sort of merged those two and became a cellular biophysicist. Um, I became interested in problems uh, related to fertilization late in my graduate career, and that carries through to today. But even now, the questions I'm asking um, have moved from just basic physical questions about how cells interact with one another to what the evolutionary consequences of those interactions are. So the nice thing about being a scientist is, you know, if you really love it, and this is true of any field, is that you're, you're continually questioning and you're actually transforming yourself over time. Great. Um, a couple more questions. So you talked about how science for you has changed um, in terms of your interests, but how, what changes have you seen maybe in the technologies or in the sciences that you do study over time? How, has, how have things changed? Oh, my gosh. I mean, the te- technology itself has been incredibly different. When I was in college, beginning, um, beginning in college, our calculators were no more than the four-function calculators that do you know, addition, subtraction, uh, division, and multiplication. That was it, and that was a big deal. We used things to make calculations called slide rules, and I'll actually show you one um, during this presentation. Um, we didn't have computers, for instance, of, of, of PCs, certainly. The, computers, the only computers we had available to us really filled rooms about this size. Um, although when I was in high school, we had a very uh, interesting computer made by a company that doesn't exist anymore called Digital Equipment Corporation, and it used pieces of magnetic tape um, to store information. We had large pieces of paper with lots of holes punched in and paper tape we would feed it in. And that was really cool back then, right? Great. Well, if you could choose one, one scientist, who would be your favorite? Ah, who would be my favorite scientist? Again, that changes with time. But I have to say, and this is going to sound like a cliche, um, probably the person who I have appreciated the most historically was Albert Einstein. And, you know, a lot of people will say that, but this is, there are a couple of reasons. First of all, Albert Einstein's brilliance wasn't appreciated when he was in middle school, in high school. Uh, he was a patent clerk in, in uh, Switzerland. Um, he was 26, year old, 26 year old, years old when he made three important discoveries. Those important discoveries were one was called the theory of special relativity, which most of your science fiction movies that you enjoy take advantage of that particular um, idea. Another is um, the photoelectric effect, which actually um, has in its roots the development of all modern electronic devices. In fact, he won the Nobel Prize for that one. Um, And then the one that relates to me is trying to understand what Brownian motion is, the random motion of particles. And he actually formalized that mathematically and made it a very powerful theory. So here was one person who was given very little, actually, wasn't given a, big, a, a chance, uh, wasn't thought to be a, going to become a big scientist, and ultimately did because he had confidence in himself and he had his own special skills that he brought to bear, which transformed all science, not just physics, but biology and chemistry as well. Fantastic. All right, one last question, um, and we'll let you get started with your lecture, and that is, other than science, what other interests do you have, or what other interests do you have in your, uh, in your fields? So you've heard me say that um, science is a creative endeavor, and so I like to do a lot of things. I play piano. I sing, actually, in a number of different groups. I'm a, a bass 
it's low register, um, in two different groups in Riverside. I, um, I also like to exercise a lot. So I was always active. You know, I wasn't in formal sports, but when I was in college, I fenced. So I, I actually used a weapon called a, a foil. Um, I now run. Um, so I've run 12 marathons. And I didn't start running marathons until I was 40 years old. And I'm not close to 40 anymore. But, you know, again, over time, I change the things, I've changed the things I'm interested in. You know, and it keeps, I think it keeps me active, whether it's athletic or it's singing or it's playing piano well, or science. Thank you so much for your insights. We look forward to hearing your lecture on population. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Okay, so the title of this talk is Earth 101, Too Many People. Now, I've got four favorite colors. Those colors are brown and green and blue and white. And one of the reasons those are my favorite colors is those happen to be the dominant colors on our Earth. Okay, so if we look at our Earth from space, and this is what we see, right? How many of you have seen a picture that looks like this? Right, most of you. This is what, you know, with, with all of our technology, this is what our planet looks like. Those colors come about because of the, in many cases, because of the interactions between the physical environment and the biological environment. Life itself makes a major contribution to these colors. And whether we look at this hemisphere or this hemisphere, this is what we think of when we think of the Earth. However, you know, if we want to understand human impacts on something as, sim as simple as that image, one only has to go to the a website for the European Space Agency to see what the Earth currently already looks like. It has transformed incredibly over the last 50 years. In fact, the Earth looks like that from space, in a sense. All of that represents all of the space junk and satellites that are now orbiting the Earth that man has put up there. Okay? That is our Earth. That is a good example of what humans do to affect the environment. Now, many of these things are great. They give us our cell phones. They give us our, our high-definition TV through satellite. They allow us to communicate all over the planet. But we have transformed it. The, um, perhaps the biggest way, however, we've transformed the planet is over the last few centuries is what's happened to our human population. We are incredibly successful as a species for one important reason. And that reason is we are creative, we are intelligent, we can accept challenges that no other species can, and we can overcome them. And one of the themes of this lecture is going to be to what extent can we continue to do that. So I'm going to uh, break this talk down into a couple of uh, different areas. The first one is going to be on documenting human population on the planet. So we're going to go through a brief history. And I have to start with some reference period. So um, we're going to start with 0 AD. And I'll show you as we go through very quickly what's happened to the population of the planet. Okay. So at 0 AD, we believe there were somewhere around 170 million people on the planet. Now at 0 AD, certain people around, you know, especially around the Mediterranean, were getting around with things like chariots. Um, we had populations in China, for instance, and parts of Asia, where we had a lot of people who had their own cultures contributing to art and science in their own right. If we now start jumping up a thousand years later, 
the world's population hadn't even doubled yet. We went from 170 million people to 265 million people. During this time period, right around 1000 AD, Leif Erikson discovered North America, we believe. Uh, the Chinese invented gunpowder. Um, Middle Eastern, especially Arabic cultures, used the scientific method. They modernized medicine. Technology advanced. This is a period of time that most European cultures called the Dark Ages, but it was anything but. If we go another 800 years, the world population was still less than a, a billion. So right around 1800 AD, Thomas Jefferson was elected our president, third president of the U.S. The Industrial Revolution was underway, and we were uh, learning to how to harness uh, power, mostly back then in the form of steam, to power machines. If you jump up to 1927, this is when the Earth's population was then 2 billion people. This was the Roaring Twenties. The U.S. was very prosperous during that period. Automobiles were common, and commercial flight began around 1927. At that time, the planet had two billion people. Now we're going to jump up by a billion people. Okay, so we, a billion people was right after I was born, 1960. Um, we had our first computers. At that time, communist China was about 11 years old. So three billion people, 1960. And again, from my reference point, I was two years old in 1960. I was two years old. Okay. Um, by 1974, just 14 years later, we added another billion people. Uh, President Richard Nixon resigned that year. Um, the remains of that time, the, the closest um, living hominid relative that we knew about, named Lucy, was discovered. 1987, 13 years later, another billion people were added to the planet. And now one of the things I want you to look at is look at the distribution of people. You'll notice that most of the world's people up to now had lived along coastal areas or near rivers. Now they're starting to move inland because they're frankly becoming crowded. Look at the population density in Asia and portions of, of Africa. Look at Europe. It's almost completely covered. Each of these dots that I've been showing you that are now starting to fill in represents one million people. Okay? By 1999... Okay, so now we're getting around the period of time that who was born? And that, yeah, so 1999. Okay, we had six billion people on the planet. Okay, um, our first real laptop computers, the Apple iMac, were really sort of um, was coming forward. Uh, the the European. Um, Europeans started the, the euro as their currency, as part of their um, economic unification. Um, episode one of Star Wars came out that year. The worst Star Wars movie ever, I think. Um, but still, needed episode one, which was really the fourth movie that came out that year. Okay, now this year, and this is not this year, but this year, meaning last October, right around Halloween, the planet reached, we believe, 7 billion people. 7 billion. Okay, that's a lot of people. By 2030, we project there will be now 9 billion people. So between now, 2012, roughly, and 2030, we will add another 3 billion people to the planet. And now notice where those people are living. Right? Many of those new people are now moving into areas that had previously been thought to be inhospitable. 
right? This is what's going to happen, we believe. And as you'll see, there's probably very little we can do about that. We're most certainly headed towards 9 billion people by the year 2030. Okay, now if we look at the um, distribution of that, most of that is in so-called underdeveloped countries versus developed countries. Okay, certainly since around 1960, look at this light blue curve. Right, all of that, all of the most of the major growth has occurred there, in Africa, Asia, Latin America, certain islands in the Caribbean, um, and then other areas in, in the South Pacific and in the Indian Ocean. Um, Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan are pretty much stable for a number of reasons. In some cases, Europe is stable simply because they've already maxed out with their population density, we believe, given their current quality of life that they want to maintain. Um, but there are other reasons that we'll explore through this talk. So we're going to look at a couple of different world maps. Okay, The first one is the fertility rate. Now what that is, it's the number of children born per female. Okay, So females, of course, are, the, are, are who bear children. So we're going to use them as a reference point. And we're going to color code the planet based on that, uh, how the fertility rates vary over the planet. So if we look at a country like the United States, you'll see it's sort of a light blue, and that represents just over, actually, two children per female in this country. Okay, And you'll see that there are many places that are either light blue or a little bit darker blue, which is even less. So our near, one of our nearest neighbors, Canada, actually has a lower fertility rate than the U.S. Just to the south of us, Mexico is some, somewhere around three. Um, it's much, much lower in places like Russia and in certain parts of Europe. Okay, but if we look at this continent, which is Africa, we see that there are many countries that have a fertility rate that isn't two or even three, it's five, six, seven or higher. That's five, six, seven children per female. Okay, so there are portions of the world, okay, and Africa is considered an underdeveloped continent with many underdeveloped countries where the fertility rates far exceed the rest of the world. Okay, now let's look at another thing that we're all interested in, which is life expectancy. Okay, um, if we look at life expectancy, and this is years, so the, the more green, the higher the life expectancy. We see that in the U.S., the life expectancy is somewhere just over 80 years old now. Okay, uh, if you compare that with around 1900, we've gone from about 50 years old to about 80 years old in just a century. So huge gains in life expectancy. So those countries, interestingly enough, that had small fertility rates, you'll notice also have high life expectancy rates. But again, let's look at Africa. What do you see? You see that their life expectancies are much lower than ours. And we, so if we, have, if we look here into the oranges and the reds, and we don't even go into some of the reds, the life expectancies in these countries look much like the United States life expectancy over 100 years ago. Okay? They're 40, 50 years age. Okay? So the same place that has the high, high fertility rates has the lowest life expectancy. What if we look at countries and ask the question, how long on average does it take a certain country's population to double? Okay? So if we look again at the U.S. here, purple is, is bad. Okay, purple meaning it's very low numbers. Okay, the U.S. here is sort of this um, 
tan color here. Okay, we're doubling our population about every 80 to 90 years right now at our, at our current rate, okay? But it's actually slowing. If you look again at, at some places in South America, and again Africa, the doubling time is as low as 12 years, okay? So think about that. Our, our current population in the U.S. is 315 million people. If we were to double in just 12 years, we would be up to 630 million people. California would go from about 40 to 45 million to 90 million people in just 12 years. And so the question is, is, this, is all of this sustainable? And what, what, are the, what are the consequences of doing this? Well, if we look at population growth over time again, and now we go back you know, to when humans first started inhabiting the planet. We can really go back to about 10,000 years to look at Homo sapiens. You'll notice for long periods of time, it grew, but at very slow rates. And even though we had major sources of death on the planet, okay, so for instance, in the 16th, 15th, 16th century, we had the plague, the Black Death. It made li very little impact on human populations worldwide. But starting at around 17, 1800, look what happens. The world's population starts to grow exponentially. And I've already shown you the pictures of what's happening over this time period in terms of population density on the planet. It goes up and up and up. This particular curve is called the J-curve. And the question is, where is it going to end up? Now, this is an optimistic curve that has us leveling off based on data from the UN by about 2000 by about 2100 at something like 11 billion people on the planet. 11 billion. Sounds like a lot, doesn't it? But that's an optimistic number. Um, but a variety of things can happen to affect that. And again, we need to ask the question, can the Earth actually sustain that? Can we have all those people on the planet? Okay? Just to put this in perspective, here's a 78-year gap. Okay, and you'll notice that it ends this year, 2012. The reason I chose 78 years because this happens to be the average life expectancy of a male in the United States. Females live longer on average. Uh, so this is a male. So if I were born 78 years ago and passed away this year, this is the growth difference I would have seen over my lifetime on the planet, okay? From just around 2 billion people to 7 billion people. 5 billion people added to the planet over my lifetime. That's incredible, okay? So what does it actually mean, okay, to do that? So let's look at some impacts, okay? Our planet is just a certain size with a certain amount of land that's habitable. As we add more people, one representation is what does it look like in terms of density? Okay, in, in a very real way, the Earth is shrinking, meaning there's less land usable per person. In 1900, okay, this comes down to a number which is about eight hectares, which a hectare is equivalent to about two and a half acres per person. Okay, as we add more people onto a planet that has the same surface area, the same amount of land per person, that number is going to drop. Okay, by 2005, okay, so just seven years ago, it dropped from almost eight hectares per person to two. Okay, a four-fold drop in the amount. Okay, that's, that means all of the land that you need to get your water from, your food from, dump all your waste into 
okay, is just this small number now. And believe me, when you're talking about all of those things, that is a very small number. Okay, for instance, let's look at just safe drinking water. You're going to start seeing themes in some of these diagrams, okay? So blue here represents that in these areas, more than 95% of the population has access to safe drinking water, okay? And that's true in the U.S., all of North America, all of Europe, okay, Russia, Australia, and many parts of South America. Okay, but as we go from dark blue to light blue to green to brown, what you see is the... Uh, access to safe water supply starts to drop. And again, look at the continent that has the least access to safe water. It's Africa. Okay, So highest fertility rates, lowest life expectancy, poorest access to clean water, okay, all on the same continent. Now, here's a picture I like. All right, this is a beautiful picture. This is a composite of what the Earth looks like at night. Okay, so what you're seeing here is literally the entire world lit up by lights that we use. And you'll notice that the countries that are lit up the most are the United States, portions of Mexico, all of Europe, some of India, the east coast of China, and Japan. Look what's not lit up. Africa. Okay, Australia's not lit up because no one lives in the middle of Australia. They do live along the coast, so they're fine. Okay, large portions of Asia, large portions of South America. Okay, this is a snapshot of who tells you, frankly, who's affluent, who has access to resources okay, that allows them to afford electricity and lights and all the things that go with that. So again, another demonstration that Africa seems to be this country that doesn't have access to, to energy like we have or the things that go with energy. Okay, one way to look at this is there's a, is a distribution. It's called a champagne glass distribution, which breaks the world's population into five equal areas in terms of numbers. So each band represents an equal fifth of the world's people. So what I'm going to do for a representation, we're going to be talking about affluence for just a minute. And I'm going to say, if we just look at transportation, what does that translate to? Well, if you're in the top 20%, and the United States, you know, for the most part, is in the top 20%, that means you have access to transportation like this, right? You can fly in, in, in uh, jet, jet planes. You can drive in nice cars, right? In some countries, not this one yet, you can get on high-speed rail. But in Japan and Europe, you can do that. That's what it means to be here if you're talking about transportation. If you're in these lower bands, okay, you still have access to trains, you know, and many people in the developing world have access to have trains, but they're not nearly as nice, often overcrowded. Um, this was a train that's taken uh, in Mumbai in, in, in India. Um, we have um, cars, but a lot of people, which are not as nice, of course. This is the most common car in China at the moment. But most of the world gets around on bicycles in, in, the, in, this, in these uh, particular regions. And bicycles, where they actually carry their work with them. That's what it means to be here. Okay. What does it mean to be down here? How do people get around who are down here in the poorest areas? It means they're looking for a pair of sandals. 
And that's just, you know, this is a pair of sandals that I, I picked out. If you can notice there, these are sandals that aren't sandals that you're going to buy at Target or Big Five. These are sandals that are put together with two collapsed Coca-Cola bottles, two-liter bottles, and some fabric strapping it onto those, that person's foot. That's what it means. That's how people get around. Now, you can ask the question, does this seem fair to you? Is this ethical? Okay. But guess what continent represents that bottom fifth? It's Africa and portions of Asia, okay. those ones that we've been focusing on. Okay, so let's look at some of the consequences. Okay. Uh, I told you earlier that you know, I have a past with helium. Now, I could talk about a lot of consequences about natural resources, and, and you're thinking, helium? Why is he going to talk about helium? Because probably what you know about helium is that it's in balloons, right? It's in parties, right? It f makes things float. It makes blimps float. But helium actually is a resource that it comes in limited amounts. It isn't just for balloons. And in fact, a Nobel Prize winning physicist whose name is Robert Richardson, who works on helium, has estimated that at the current rate of usage, the world will run out in 25 years because we have very little of it. Okay? It is the second most abundant element in the universe, but not on the planet. It's abundant in the universe because it's made in stars by the process of fusion. But those processes don't occur here. It's made through a much slower process on our planet, which gives us a limited amount. Okay? It's actually produced as a result of radioactive decay, primarily from two elements, radioactive uranium and thorium, okay, who have half-lives of hundreds of millions or billions of years. Okay? What that means is we can make very little helium this way, but it's the only way we can make it on this planet, and we can store it. But helium is used in a number of things. So if you have to go in for imaging, okay, if, if, they, if your physician thinks something is wrong, and you have to go use a machine called uh, magnetic resonance imaging, the huge magnets and motors in those imaging systems have to be cooled, and they're cooled by, by helium. Um, in order to make new optical fibers, which allow for communication, which replaced copper wires many years ago on this planet, we need to actually keep the atmosphere very clean, and we use helium to do that. Your liquid crystal displays on your televisions now and your monitors require that we have clean atmospheres provided by things like helium. Uh, it's used to pressurize and purge fuel for rockets for instance. Um, and it's used as a coolant in these super collider facilities. Perhaps you've heard of CERN and on the Swiss-French uh, border, where the large, one of the largest experiments in human history is occurring right now, smashing atoms to small bits so that scientists can understand the relationship between the structure of the atom and the structure of the universe. That's a huge facility that requires a fair amount of helium as coolant. And if we use all that, um, that helium, we can't do any of these things, at least with the current technology. So having lots of people ultimately affects a variety of resources. It affects obviously things like fossil fuels and water, but this is one that you may not have thought of. It's a, con a direct consequence of having a lot of people on the planet who have a need for a specific resource. Okay? So, you know, we, you know the, if you are familiar with the Bible, you, know, you may have, in, especially in Genesis, you know, there's a lot of begetting going on. Right, which is you know, making the next generation of people. So Cecil Rhodes said that man begets, but land does not beget. We have, we have limited resources. Okay? Here you're seeing an oil drilling rig right, in the ocean. 
that's now taking our last reserves that we think are fossil fuels and we're going deeper and going to places we've never gone before to get the last of those fossil fuels. Um, we're reclaiming water by storing it in places that naturally we didn't used to store it. This is a picture of Lake Powell, okay, which is the now the head source for the Colorado River, which provides a lot of our water and power. But all this is about 400 feet deep, or at least it is 400 feet deep when it's full. It's not full at the moment. Um, but this all used to be land. Right? We've reclaimed a lot of water. Uh, we strip mine still in places like West Virginia for coal, for, for other, another source of fossil fuel. Um, a new practice is trying to get the last reserves of natural gas out of the planet. They're using high pressure steam and water in a process called fracking, which we're afraid is going to hurt our water supply, but we're currently doing this. We're deforesting many of our rainforests, the source of all the oxygen in which we breathe. Um, and then we, we create things called, like the, the, the ozone hole. Okay, which still exists, but it's actually a testament to what we can do because the ozone hole was created by man-made compounds, um, which used to be parts of aerosols. And we stopped that a little over a decade ago. And it's hoped that we'll start to see this ozone hole go away. And why do we need ozone? Because ozone protects us from harmful ultraviolet rays from the sun. Without ozone, we would fry. Okay, so let's ask, let's look at the so-called carrying capacity for humans on the Earth. What that simply means is if we have a lot of people, so be fruitful and multiply. Um, we have to take all those people, and we have a limited number of resources. So we have to take all of those people, and we have to divide it by resources. That's food. That's water. That's energy. So what is the carrying capacity of the planet? Because we only have limited resources. Okay. Well, again, here's the J-curve. Here's another representation over time. And here's the human population. Right? And you'll see that the train says, I think I can. I think I can. I hope I can. I really hope I can. Man, I hope I can. Because as that population goes up, we're using more and more resources at a faster rate. Now, a lot of scientists have, have looked at this. One of my favorites was a, was a cell biologist. We didn't call him a cell biologist at the time. His name was Antony van Leeuwenhoek. He was actually the first person to use a microscope to look at microorganisms. And so he had a, a microscope, which after I'm done, I'll pass around a replica of one. But uh, this is what it looked like. It doesn't look like a microscope, does it? This is a single lens. And Antonio van Leeuwenhoek was brilliant because he knew how to exactly polish that lens so that he could put his samples on this little pinhead here. And he could. this is a stage for a microscope that he could move up and down. This is a focus that could go out back and forth. And then he would look right at the head of the pin with a single lens and see things that no one had ever seen before, even people who had more sophisticated microscopes. And one of the things that he saw were protozoans, okay, and all, a whole new world opened up. He called them his little animals. The Latin for that is animaliculi. Um, he also looked at these products of meiosis that you've all learned about, and in males, the products of meiosis are germ cells, 
or gametes called sperm. So he was the first one to look at them. And Leeuwenhoek actually and his contemporaries had an interesting interpretation of that, which was they thought that sperm had little men in them. And they call that little man a homunculus. And the idea was that every little sperm had a little man or a little woman in it. Okay, And upon um, deposition in the, in, the, in the female, it took about nine months for that microscopic human to grow into a baby of about five, six, seven pounds. Um, that theory, called preformation, actually lasted for about almost two centuries before people realize that's not really what happens, right? that there's fertilization. Interesting. But he used his diagrams along what he knew about his native Holland to calculate what he thought the um, carrying capacity of the Earth was. And he actually wasn't far off, interestingly enough, although his calculations had a few errors that canceled each other out, of about 16 billion people. That's what he figured the planet could hold. So he was a brilliant man in many ways. And you know he, that's right around the number that many people will argue is our, is our carrying capacity, at least at the moment. So not far. Um, other people have made other estimates. Um, Tom, Robert Malthus was a very famous British econ- economist and clergyman. Um, and in 1798, he published an essay which was so controversial, or he was afraid it was con- so controversial, he wouldn't put his name on it at first. And he argued that the population would inevitably increase faster than the food supply unless it's kept in check by things like famine, disease, and war. Um, his ideas actually gained a lot of support um, and he actually wanted to use his arguments to limit food supplies um, so that you know we could control populations. Um, but he was also um, was a very strong influence on a very famous evolutionary biologist, in fact, the person who's given the credit for evolution by natural selection, which is Charles Darwin. Okay, so Mal- Malthus um, influenced him greatly. We still use his models today to actually come up with carrying capacity estimates, and they vary all over the place, depending on you know, various parameters. Most people believe the carrying capacity of the planet ranges somewhere from 2 billion to 40 billion people. Now, we're currently at 7, right? So there are some people who already think that we've already gone beyond, ultimately, the carrying capacity of the planet. Others are much more optimistic and think that we can get up perhaps as high as 40. Most people think it's in the range of 9 to 13 billion. And remember, no matter what we do, we believe we're going to be at 9 billion by uh, 2030 anyway. Okay? Well, there are other people. These are very famous people, uh, especially in the 1970s. Pollen and Ehrlich are scientists and faculty members at Stanford University. And they were interested in the environmental impact on, uh, or the effect of populations on the environment. So they came up with a very simple uh, relationship, which is I equals PAT. It's called the IPAT formula. And simply what this says is that the environmental impact Okay, is going to be affected by, first of all, the population size, second of all, by the affluence, you know, how your quality of life per person, um, and it's related really to the consumption of environmental resources. So, for instance, if you want to uh, minimize um, environmental impact, perhaps you should consider lowering your standard of living, for instance. 
Um, and the, the T here is the environmentally harmful impact that technology produces. So looking at all these, okay, for instance, let's say we wanted to decrease our population. Okay, so let's, let's um, or decrease our impact on the environment. If we simply decreased uh, the consumption of environmental resources by 5%. So you go home tonight and you tell your parents, what if we cut down our gasoline consumption just 5% in the next few years? Can we do that? Um, and we improve technology so they caused a 5% decrease in environmental damage. So perhaps some new technology like the creation of a hybrid car and electric vehicle can do something like that. But if we just decrease those both by 5%, the overall um, impact on the environment would be decreased by 10%. That's the argument. However, if we don't do anything about population, because population is part of this equation, then the impact on the environment will return to what it is in just six years. So you can do a lot with these two, but ultimately the argument is we've got to do something about population as well. Okay? So what about the United States? We're very affluent. You've seen many examples of that. The Earth at nighttime should have convinced you of that. We currently have a population of 313 million people. Okay? Currently, there's a new baby born every eight seconds. Someone dies every 12 seconds. We have a new international migrant, migrant every 46 seconds. Altogether, we gain one person every 15 seconds. So four people a minute in this country. Okay? If we want to take the population down to 150 million, okay, all it would require in the next 100 years is to lower that birth rate. Okay? Because we're not, we're not going to do it through any other method, right? That would be horrible. Um, we're going to lower that birth rate from about two to one and a half. Okay. That means your generation and the next generation, if they're committed to doing this, it would mean having family sizes that on the average are one and a half children per family. Someone have two, someone have one, about 50-50. That would mean we could decrease our population by about half and hopefully maintain our standard of living. That's what that means. Okay? Now, if we want to decrease the population, we can do it a number of different ways. Um, these are all what's called vectors, carriers of disease that we're familiar with. They might be rats, they might be various types of bugs or insects, fleas, lice, bed bugs, horrible things. Um, but all these things potentially carry diseases that threaten populations. But disease itself, for in interestingly enough, doesn't cause populations to drop. I'm going to show you the thing that affects populations more than anything, and it's something I've already shown you one picture of. It's those. Okay? Sperm is a vector for, um, which ultimately leads to, and, and so do eggs, um, lead to increased populations. So many scientists want to know, you know, are there ways, are there new ways that we can control population or fertility rates by targeting specific cells, sperm or eggs, okay, so that individuals can make the decision to, to keep those rates low. Okay, so we're talking about controlling human fertility. And interestingly enough, we can compare this with treatments for something like cancer. Many of you know that cancers are treated through a variety of chemicals, many of which are incredibly nasty. Those chemicals combined are called chemotherapy. In the early days, we used to use really nasty things. Nitrogen mustard is actually derived from, um, from um, gas bombs used in World War I. 
And it was found when people who, uh, who were in particular hospital wards who were killed by this, that certain tissues in their bodies, called lymphoid tissues, stopped dividing. And it gave scientists clues that you could use agents like this to stop cancers. Um, later on, people found other compounds. This is a very famous medical scientist. His name was Sidney Farber, who actually found that folic acid, a key vitamin, was high in cancer cells. And if you designed drugs to keep them down, you could fight cancers, especially leukemias in children. And then it was found that combinations of different drugs could fight cancer. The problem with all these approaches, although they could fight cancer, the problem is they themselves have bad effects on your body. And so with these types of strategies, trying to cure cancer, it's can you kill more cancer cells, or hopefully all the cancer cells, before you kill all your own cells? Of course, what you want to do is design drugs that are specific for cancer. And we're fortunate now, we're in a phase where we know a lot about um, the cell biology and molecular biology of cancer. And we can start to design specific drugs. Here's a drug in red here that binds to a specific protein that causes a certain class of cancers. And by using this targeted approach, we can stop cancer, okay, or at least certain classes of cancer. There's many, many different types of cancer. But the idea is we're going, we've gone from an age 50, 60 years ago from agents that killed a lot of cells, including cancer cells, to ones that are now more specific. When we design things against um, reproduction, it's the same idea. In females, the most famous one is the birth control pill. And the birth control pill has an interesting history uh, that went, started really in the 1950s through the 1970s. And the birth control pill is still incredibly uh, powerful and widely used today. But again, in, in the birth control pill, analogous to old chemotherapy, these agents, these hormones, are actually normal hormones in a woman's body that control when eggs are released from the ovaries, when the uterus is prepared for implantation of, of an embryo. And what, what these drugs do is they trick the female's body into thinking it's pregnant, that she's pregnant. And if you're pregnant, you can't conceive. And that's the brilliance here. But the problem is that many of these drugs for birth control pills and females have a lot of potential risks, especially early on when the doses were very high. Those included stroke, heart attacks, and some cancers. So clearly the, the birth control pill, although incredible in what it was able to do and still does, there, there potentially is something much more powerful that we can use, something that's more directed, like with chemotherapy. Now, we have agents, you know, there's one that's a male pill. It actually is derived from cotton, and it was discovered quite accidentally because when a country that's quite large like China was looked at, there was one region in China, the Jinxi province of China, has a much lower fertility rate than any other portion in China. And people ultimately realized that it was linked to the fact that people in this part of China use cottonseed oil in their cooking. You know, most people don't use cottonseed oil in their cooking. And it turns out that there's a compound in cottonseed oil called gossipol, which is yellow pigment, um, which is found in the stems and leaves of cotton. It's easily extracted. That decreases male fertility, okay, the production of sperm. 
and also the, the motility of sperm. So this was really exciting. And so um, scientists and pharmaceutical companies in the 1970s started investigating Gossipol's potential as a male, as a male contraceptive. Um, the World Health Organization got really interested in this. The initial studies were very promising. It can be taken orally as a pill, which is great. It's 99% effective. Um, it lowers both the motility of sperm and it blocks their production. It's reversible in most men and it doesn't upset the hormonal balance in males like the pill can do. So it looked great. Uh, the problem is, is that it acted on a very important chemical pathway, which you'll learn later, um, is involved in glycolysis, is involved in energy production, and it, it blocks a particular enzyme in that pathway. Um, when they started really looking closer, um, they found one of the things that it does, it decreases potassium levels in your body. And potassium actually happens to be a very important ion in your body. It ultimately is related to, for instance, how well you can move your muscles and many of your body functions occur. And when potassium drops, you f get fatigue, muscle weakness, and in extreme forms, paralysis. Higher doses actually, it turned out, learn, uh, lead to sterility meaning these males will never reproduce again. And in fact, at only 10 times the dose of what was needed for birth control, it was found that it was often killing people. That's one form of birth control, but probably not a good one, right? So um, ultimately, the World Health Organization argued against using it. But interestingly enough, there are countries in the world now that are investigating using it as a permanent um, method for controlling um, fertility in males. Places like Australia, Brazil, Chile, China, the Dominican Republic, and Nigeria are currently investigating the use of gossipol as a way of promoting permanent sterility, which is an option. Okay? Well, what we really want to do is understand the factors that lead to successful fertilization. So here's a sperm binding to an egg. And we can direct it by looking at specific molecules on sperm or eggs that are responsible for fertilization. So for a few minutes, I'm going to compare the sting of a bee with the sting of a sperm. Okay. Um, so it turns out that sperm have a protein called an enzyme on their surface, and this particular enzyme breaks apart a, a very common molecule in our body. Okay. We can take a gene sequence, so that's a sequence of that gene, those four small letters represent the four bases that make up DNA, so we can sequence that entire thing. DNA ultimately ends up to, go to make the enzyme itself, which is a protein. Those capital single letters all represent individual amino acids that make up a protein, so we know that. And we can actually use modern computational tools to tell us how that protein folds, and it's the protein folding that actually is responsible for its function. Okay, now that particular enzyme breaks a molecule up called hyaluronic acid. Now, hyaluronic acid is made up of these, this red and this blue here represent two different sugars linked together by this oxygen atom. Okay, and then they go on to repeat again and again and again. It would be like taking Legos of red and blue and just making a long line of red and blue Legos. Okay? This hyaluronic acid is very important in our bodies. Okay? Um, the hyaluronic acid contains something like 250 to 50,000 repeating units. Um, one gram of this can actually bind up to six liters of water. Okay? So you think that um, if you think of, of diapers, 
disposable diapers so that the polymers there are, are designed to absorb lots of water. We should be putting hyaluronic acid in diapers that absorb a lot more water. The average human has about 15 grams of this in their body, and they turn over about a third of it every day, meaning they're breaking it down and making new hyaluronic acid. It's a major component in your eye, in the fluid in your eye called the vitreous humor. It's about 2% hyaluronic acid, and its function is to keep it as an aqueous or water-filled environment. It's a major lubricant in our joints, especially in our knees, um, in our hips and our elbows, and between our vertebrae. And it also turns out to be, so there it is, it's in the eye, it's in the joints, but it's also a major component of eggs that are ovulated. So this large circle here is a sphere, actually, and that's an egg. And then all of these other dots are another type of cell called cumulus cells, and they surround an ovulated egg. And what ties those eggs together is this molecule, hyaluronic acid. Same stuff that's in your eye, same stuff that's in your knees. Okay, so we can target contraception, okay, because the sperm actually has an enzyme on its surface, this hyaluronidase, and the way it gets into that egg is it carries that enzyme on its surface, okay, it's an enzyme that initially was found in the bee venom, it was found in bee venom, so hyaluronidase and bee venom, when you get stung by a bee, the, the problem the bee has when it stings its prey, okay, you're not prey, a bee's not interested in you, but if the venom, you want the venom to get in the individual. Well, the problem is there's always hyaluronic acid in, in those cells as well as other things. So you need a compound, you need an enzyme to break down that matrix, the hyaluronic acid, so the venom can get in there. Okay, So that initial gene sequence I showed you was a sequence which we related to that bee venom hyaluronidase. It's also on the sperm. The sperm is using it to get through that hyaluronic acid in the, through these cumulus cells, ultimately get to the egg. That is a potential target. Now that we know that, we can design compounds against that enzyme to block fertilization. Okay, um, There's other things that we can use contraception for. Uh, it's not just for humans. Here's a very famous scientist here at UCR. His name is Dr. Alexander Reichel. He's in our entomology department. He's actually uh, designing contraceptive strategies to stop ovulation in female mosquitoes, especially mosquitoes that carry diseases like malaria and dengue fever. So we can use these same strategies, not just to control fertilization in humans, but also in things like insects as well. If we look at places like Australia, okay, they have, Australia, as you probably know, was a relative, had a relatively small population until certain European populations moved, moved in, uh, mostly from Great Britain. They brought with them many of their animals, some of their crops. They created ecological problems. They have huge problems with mice. They have huge problems with foxes. Okay, that they, they introduced. They introduced the foxes because they also brought in rabbits. And those are rabbits sitting around a watering hole. Um, the environment was such that the rabbit populations took off. Um, so there's many rabbits, and having that many rabbits destroys the ecosystems. They thought they could solve the problem by bringing in foxes. The foxes themselves have taken off. So they've got many, many problems. The way they're trying to control this in Australia right now is actually designing contraceptives against these animals. 
Okay, again, the same reason why humans impact environment, certain animals, often introduced by humans, do the same thing. So we can use the same strategies. Okay, so what are we going to do? What are you going to do is the real question because, you know, my generation is about done. We've left this for you, right? So what are the types of things that we need to think about? We've talked about fertility control. We've talked about the environment. We clearly have to start making some smart choices. Okay, well, there are a few solutions, right? A very famous population biologist named Joel Cohen says there's three possibilities, right? And these all relate to eating, interestingly enough. So we could think of the, you know, everything as a pie, okay? So one idea is, you know, just through technology, make a bigger pie. Increase our productive capacities through technology and innovation, right? So far, we've been able to do that quite successfully. We could put fewer forks on the table, right? So meaning reduce the numbers and expectations of people through such means as family planning and actually becoming vegetarians, because one of the things that we know is that the production of meat is incredibly expensive. Okay? You're going to start hearing more and more about humans' carbon footprint. And one of the biggest contributions to that carbon footprint is the production of meat. And we can do a lot simply just become, by becoming more vegetarian than we currently are. We can teach better manners. And by that, we mean socially changing in terms of people's interactions through improved planning and government to enhance social justice. What are we going to do about continents like Africa? Is it fair to continue the way we have? Is it fair to say we're going to be affluent, but other parts of the world are not? These are all decisions that you're going to be making. Now, long before you were born, but right after college, I went to graduate school. And this is what my world looked like. Okay? I had to take things to, I was moving down to Baltimore, Maryland to go to graduate school in Johns Hopkins. Well, if you look at all that stuff, right, that weighed, I estimate, somewhere around 500 pounds. And I think I'm probably underestimating because I had an awful lot of books and albums. But 500 pounds, this is 1981. Okay? I was 23 years old. All of that stuff and more now can be done by that thing, right? 500 pounds versus 4.9 ounces, right? All of that technology in that short period of time. 500 pounds, 4.9 ounces. That's what technology can do for us. That's what a sharp mind can do for us. And if we look at over that period of time, all of the things that we've been able to, to make, okay? These are just some of the examples of what where technology has brought us in just the last few years. This is what you can do. This is what you will do with a science education. This is what you will do with a creative mind. This is how you'll solve the problems. That's one important part of preserving a planet that we all want to look like this. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.